So a number of uh, weeks ago now, uh, I guess we could actually say a few months ago now, we, we started a sermon series in the book of Acts. And we've kind of been progressing chapter by chapter, not quite verse by verse. But this morning, uh, we take sort of a, a big step forward uh, as we're skipping chapters 14 and 15. Uh, let me just uh, explain a little bit as to why we're skipping these particular chapters. It's not because there's nothing good in them. Uh, that, that is not the case at all because those are parts of the Word of God. And so it would be great for us uh, to look at those. We're skipping them because we're trying to trace through the fulfillment of God's uh, purpose in Jesus. And, and in doing so, we're hitting high points, so to speak. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I know that you've heard me say this a number of times over the past several weeks, and I know that you're going to continue to hear me say this a number of times over future weeks. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that has been uh, what I would call, that is, the, the main theme for the entirety of the book of Acts. How Jesus witnesses his disciples, his apostles, those who follow after him, clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, take the gospel uh, across the known world. So we've seen then... The, the Holy Spirit fall in Acts chapter 2, and we've seen the church begin to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem. And then we've seen the church and the gospel spread into Samaria with the ministry of Philip. We've seen the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and, and the Antiochian church, the church of Antioch in Acts chapter 11. In chapter 13, the gospel was taken to Cyprus, and today in Acts chapter 16, in fulfillment of Jesus saying, to the ends of the earth, we see the gospel taken into what we can call Europe. Here in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas and St. Luke with them take the gospel into Greece, into Philippi, this important city of Macedon. And we're going to hit some high points here in chapter 16, focusing on Paul and Silas and their encounter with three separate, very different people there in this important city. And Paul's encounters with these three very different individuals is sort of the basis for our big idea for today. So after you hear me speak this morning, I hope that you'll come away understanding that the gospel is for everyone. And we see that with these three very different people receiving gospel ministry. Let's talk a little bit about the, the social context for this encounter, these encounters. Let's talk a little bit about the city of Philippi. Uh, some people think that Luke, St. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, was a citizen of the city of Philippi. Uh, he, he talks about it with sort of glowing uh, comments. He talks about it being a, a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And, and for him, it, he's reflecting perhaps a level of affection for his home city. The city of Philippi is an example of, uh, of what we would call colony cities in the empire of Rome. Rome, for the most part, was uh, an urban empire dominated by cities. The cities of Rome were, were the places where power 
resided, the places where government rested. They were the places where things happened, where opportunities were. But not all cities were created equal. The most important city, of course, was Rome itself. And in the hierarchy of importance, those cities that were most closely connected to Rome, looked like Rome, were mirrors of Rome, were themselves more important. These were colonies, colonies of Rome, uh, cities such as Corinth, Iconium, Lystra, Troas, and Philippi. If you read through the book of Acts, those are cities that Paul paid a lot of attention to and went to. These colony cities were settled by veterans of Rome's armies, veterans of Rome's wars. And in the words of scholar Everett Ferguson, these colony cities were a little Rome, Rome away from home. (laughs) That's good. Uh, the, the, these colonies were often exempt. They had, they had special privileges. They, didn't, they were often exempt from paying taxes. They, uh, they held a, a right to a limited rule, uh, autonomous rule. They, there were many inhabitants of these colony cities that had the rights of Roman citizens. Philippi was, was one of Rome's mini-me's, and it was run and, run and ruled according to Roman laws and principles. Sitting on an important east-west highway, Philippi was very literally uh, sort of the doorway from Rome into Asia Minor. It was a metropolis of diversity, diversity in ethnicity, diversity in religious background, and like all cities, diversity in economic standing. It's in this very Roman city that the gospel steps into Europe and comes to the most Roman city yet in the book of Acts. As Paul and Silas encounter three very different people with very different backgrounds, ethnicities, and needs, we see that the gospel, again, is for everyone. We got to be grateful that the gospel is for everyone because, folks, you and I, we're everyone. And it is by God's grace that the gospel comes to those who are everyone. And so, fundamentally, as we look at this passage, we ought to stop just for a moment and say, thank you, Jesus, that your gospel is for me. The first individual Paul and Silas encounter here in Philippi um, is Lydia. Now, having arrived in Philippi, Paul, Silas, and, and Luke waited until the Sabbath day and went to find a place where Jewish worship would have taken place. This is well within Paul's pattern. Anytime he went to a city, he started first with a Jewish synagogue, and then he went to the Gentiles. Here in Philippi, the location for the Jewish worship uh, was outside the city, near the river. And there they found a group of women who had gathered to pray. And so the first thing we recognize about this specific individual, Lydia, is that she is a woman. Now, you may not think that that's uh, all that big of a deal here in 21st century America, but in the first century, it was a big deal for the gospel to be presented to a woman as equally as to a man. A big deal because wives were often simply expected to worship the same deity as the husband. And so the fact that Lydia is with Jewish people worshiping the God of the Bible indicates to us that she has a certain level of freedom. Either she's unwed or widowed, or her husband is very, very tolerant for her to go out and find a god, a deity to worship on her own. But Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
And Luke tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Not a, not a native of Philippi. She, in fact, was from Asia Minor, from Thyatira. And Thyatira itself is a city in Asia Minor that was famous uh, around the ancient world uh, for its dyed cloth, especially its purple. And here she is, probably an importer of this, this purple cloth. She probably would pay lower costs in her hometown with her connection. She'd import it into Philippi, raise the price just a tad, and make some profit off these wealthy Roman citizens. We know from Luke's report that this Lydia, who was probably wealthy, was also a Gentile and was connected to the biblical God through worship Worship with the Jews. As with Cornelius, the Gentile is on the fringes of Judaism. She became a believer in Jesus because of God's work to save her. We see St. Luke say that God, the Lord, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Right? The gospel's for everyone. Lydia is a, uh, a foreigner in the city of Philippi. Lydia is wealthy. Lydia is a woman high social standing connected to Judaism. The gospel's for her. She has some needs, uh, spiritual needs. She needs forgiveness of sins. People may look at Lydia and think, man, she's got it all together. She's got a wealthy, or, 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 she's got a great business. She's got a, a big house. She's got fine clothes, a nice car. Oh, well, not the nice car part. She's got a great chariot, right? But she needs Jesus. There's nothing in her life that she would say that we would say is lacking. But she needs Jesus. There's nothing in her life that, that she couldn't accomplish. But she needs Jesus because she cannot, she cannot pay the wages of sin. She needs Jesus. And the gospel's for everyone. The second individual that Paul encountered with Silas really helps us to, to start to think about just how different people can be and still need Jesus and the reality of Jesus being what everybody needs because the second individual that Paul encountered with Silas was from the opposite social and economic station as Lydia. You couldn't get farther from Lydia in a very real sense than this slave girl. In verse 16 of, of Acts chapter 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So again, this, uh, in contrast to Lydia, this poor unnamed slave girl was owned by others. Rather than being free to create wealth for herself, she was used by others to create wealth for them. Oh, and, and by the way, she's oppressed by a demonic spirit, right? Th th this is not, let's just say this right out front. You know, when, when Paul, in the name of Jesus, uh, casts this demon from her, he's not stealing some nice gift that she has received. He is, he is doing something for her good in the name of Jesus, bringing healing and freedom. She is possessed or oppressed by a demonic spirit. The religious cultic system of, of the Greeks paid a degree of trust to oracles. And if you, if you know and have seen uh, the, any of the Matrix movies, there's an individual character that's the oracle who can kind of tell future events. I'm looking out at all of you, and most of you are blank in the face, so Dick's even shaking his head, no, he's not seen the Matrix. Uh, great, that just bombed badly. Th thank you. Praise the Lord. Somebody saw it. All right. 
So, it, it, so this oracle is basically what would happen is the oracle is supposed to have some kind of access to the, a divinity. And you could ask the oracle, hey, what's going to happen on this Tuesday? And they could tell you, right? Of course, you have to pay them or do some sort of service, right? So in Greece, especially uh, important was the oracle of Delphi. Now, this probably is going to interest about three of us in here, myself included. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. And me and Craig, we're on the same wavelength right now, Craig. So a- as legend had it, right? Remember, Greek, Greek legends, uh, the Greek deities were very human-like. They had no problem descending down from Mount Olympus to come slum with the people of creation. And so, as legend has it, the, the god Apollo came down to Delphi and killed this sea, let me say that differently, she-serpent uh, named Python, right? And Apollo then becomes the god of prophecy and the spokesman for Zeus and there is established at Delphi, the place where uh, Apollo killed this she-serpent, a, a, a temple or a place of oracle where a priestess at Delphi could be consulted for guidance. Now, this is a, uh, where I'm getting to the point, so hang on with me. Uh, often what would happen is that the, this priestess would be approached and asked some questions, and the priestess would perhaps uh, take a... Take a, take a magic mushroom or chew on some particular leaves um, under the influence of something, whether a substance or a demonic spirit, the oracle would utter out an answer under this python spirit. So Apollo kills this, this she-serpent named Python. The spirit of this python then sort of overwhelms the priestess and sort of answer the questions. I make this a big deal because in the Greek language here that Paul, that Luke was writing, he says very specifically that this slave girl had a python spirit. She's an oracle being used by a demonic spirit connected to a pagan oracle religion cultic system that goes back way, way back to Apollo. All right, so when he, when she starts following. Uh, Paul and Silas around and starts harassing them and heckling them by shouting out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She wasn't giving witness and support to Paul and to Silas and the gospel. In fact, in her pagan, demonic, uh, oppressed situation, she's actually misleading the crowds away from Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, demons know who Jesus is. Right, we saw that in Luke chapter 4 this meeting from, this morning from the gospel. The demons know who Jesus is. What are you going to do to us, son of the most high? Are you going to destroy us? They know who he is. And, and later in Acts, uh, there's a group of uh, young men who try to exercise authority over demons. And the demon looks at them and says, listen, we know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. We don't know who you are. And then the demons go ahead and they beat up the guys and they have to run away naked. So the demon knows what Paul is saying. He's, the demon's not trying to give witness and validity to what Paul is saying. The demon's trying to mislead people away from the gospel. You see, this Gentile, in the Gentile pagan world, deities were often referred to as the Most High. Zeus, the Most High. Apollo, the Most High. Right? And by her intentionally ambiguous proclamation, she was serving as something of an echo chamber, pointing them back to whichever deity they considered to be the most high. Essentially saying, whatever you hear from Paul and Silas, what they tell you will lead you back to the God that you already are worshiping. 
Not uncommon to hear people in the year 2017 talk about all the various religions of the world leading up the same mountain to the same mountaintop. We've, we've heard religious leaders and so-called Christian denominations say that all religions are just one highway and each different religion is the, a different car leading you to the same destination. Well, here, this, this, this pagan girl, this, this demonic spirit is saying whatever they're saying, they're going to lead you to Zeus or to Apollo. And so Paul had enough of it. Because it was misleading. It was leading people away from Jesus. And he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very hour. Salvation in the name of Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is for everyone. Even a demonically oppressed servant girl. Wealthy or poor, free or slave, Connected to Judaism or one trapped in empty paganism, Jesus can, does, and will deliver them all because the gospel is for everyone. Now, having had their income cut off by Paul, the owners of the slave girl, take him to court. You know, they're not interested in the well-being of this poor girl. They're only ticked off because Paul stole their, their opportunity to make money. And so they take him to court. And through this process, Paul meets another individual with the gospel of Jesus. This third encounter of Paul and Silas is with the jailer. The political leaders of Philippi treated Paul and Silas as foreigners. That's to say they treated them shabbily. And when they had been charged with disorderly Jewish conduct and with being un-Roman, Paul and Silas were beaten and then put into jail. But like Peter in Acts chapter 12, Paul and Silas won't stay in jail for long. We read from St. Luke, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. There isn't much doubt here uh, that this uh, earthquake was by God's power. There isn't much doubt that it was God who did this, And we we say that because of the context. One, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns after being beaten and thrown in jail. Uh, That should, you know, when we can't find a a parking space at Dustin Commons or are stuck in in, uh, traffic on 98 in the middle of July, maybe this should change our attitude a little bit in that context. But after having been beaten and thrown into jail, then, then Paul and Silas are singing hymns and offering prayers. The earthquake happens, and the jailer recognizes the divine power in the event. The jailer was going to kill himself because of this. He was going to kill himself because he thought his uh, uh, inmates had escaped. He was responsible for them, and he was going to kill himself because he either was going to be publicly humiliated or himself killed. But as he was going to do himself in, Paul and Silas stop him, and in response Uh, To the power that he had witnessed, the jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer would have known the the power that that Paul and Silas had at their disposal in the name of Jesus Christ. They would have known, he would have known that they had cast out this demon in the name of Jesus. And now this one who has supernatural power over demonic forces has also power to break open jails and to shake, literally shake the earth. He knows power and he knows truth and he wants to be a part of whatever they're a part of. He wants to be a part of it. 
And in response to the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Salvation is in the name of Jesus alone. And salvation in Jesus is for everyone. The jailer was probably middle class and very well could have been a retired Roman soldier. It was common for jailers to come from the army. More than likely, the jailer himself was a pagan Gentile who, like Lydia, had his heart opened by God and recognized power and truth when he saw it. He saw the power of God in the earthquake. He heard the truth of Jesus. And St. Luke tells us he believed. He believed, he took Paul and Silas into his home, his household believed and was baptized, and he went from being their houser as a jailer to taking care of them, taking care of their wounds, and feeding them. The gospel is for everyone, and it changes us when we encounter it. Lydia was a wealthy woman from Asia Minor who believed in Jesus and opened her home to a church. The unnamed slave girl was delivered from a demon in the name and power of Jesus. And while we don't know for certain what became of her, we do know that at that moment in time, she was a prisoner set free by the power of Christ. And the jailer was saved from death by his own hand. He and his household were brought into God's kingdom by Jesus. Each one of these three from a different ethnic background. Each one of these three from a different economic status. Each one of these three from a different religious background. And each encountering Jesus and the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen for the sins and for salvation. Each had their needs met. Lydia needed forgiveness of sins. She needed to come into the covenant family through the the body and blood of Jesus Christ. She needed to know Jesus, this poor servant girl, needed to be freed from the demonic oppression, and this jailer needed to have his life saved, literally saved, physically saved. The gospel is for everyone. Now, I think this is really important for us to hear because on the one hand, having believed in Jesus, we ought to turn around and give praise and thanks to God. On the other hand, We have to recognize that there is a human tendency to join forces with those folks who look like us, think like us, act like us, vote like us, and cheer for the same team as us, don't we? We tend toward the exclusion of those we consider other, and we join with those that we consider same. And these are habits that form around our tendencies. But like all habits and all tendencies, this habit of exclusion needs to be considered carefully, prayerfully, And thoughtfully, starting with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and and moving through chapters 8, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, and as the book will progress, we keep coming face to face with the fact that the gospel is for everyone. Whether we've talked about, whether we're talking about Jewish folks or Gentiles who worship with Jewish folks, or whether we're talking about Samaritans or just plain old Gentile pagans, the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, and life in him is for everyone. As Pastor John Stott has put it, God's attitude to people is not determined by any external criteria, such as their appearance, race, nationality, or class. If God doesn't care, Why should we? 
This is, of course, going to mean that we encounter people who may not think like us, eat like us, vote like us, or cheer for the right color of jersey. In seeking to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building His kingdom, we realize and we recognize that God's unstoppable plan welcomes the other, and the gospel of Jesus redeems people of all ethnicities and out of all religious backgrounds, as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the gospel is for everyone. You see, folks, any person that we encounter is someone for whom Jesus died. There isn't a single one of us who have met or will ever meet someone for whom the gospel isn't relevant, important, and life-changing. The gospel is for everyone. And at the end of all things, when God has come and His kingdom is on earth, Jesus' church will be a group of everyone as it will be a group of people from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing in praise of Him. That is a future certainty because God has promised it, and it is to be a present reality because the gospel is for everyone. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.